This is episode 72 of Ethics and Culture Cast from the DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture. Welcome to episode 72 of Ethics and Culture Cast from Notre Dame's DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture. I'm Ken Hellenius, the Communications Specialist at the Center. In this episode, we chat with Bo Bonner, Senior Advisor of Mission Initiatives and Director of the Center for Human Flourishing at Mercy College of Health Sciences in Des Moines. We chat about his journey to the Catholic faith, how St. John Henry Newman has hounded him throughout his career, and much, much more. Let's sit down together for this delightful conversation. Well, Bo Bonner, thank you so much for coming to be with us here on the podcast. Oh, of course. Thank you for uh, inviting me here. It's been uh, wonderful to be on campus, and especially since it's uh, not 100 degrees. I'm pretty happy about that. We're close. We're trying to get there for you. We're, for, for, <laughs> for people this close to the lake, we're trying. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Well, well, Bo, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? Where did you do your studies? Kind of those sorts of things. I mean, anyone who knows me knows that within five to ten minutes, I'll point out that I'm from Oklahoma. So I'm an Oak. Um, my family's north central Oklahoma, like the, the heart of red dirt country, like where the red clay runs close. Uh, most of my family now, so when we go back and visit northeastern Oklahoma, and uh, even though I'm a convert and most of my family's uh, Baptist, it's funny how much uh, many of my, like my parents and my mom and dad, they're all sort of around Clear Creek Abbey. Uh, they did not mean to do that, but that's sort of uh, where they are. But being from Oklahoma, um, you can ask anyone, it's a big deal to me and uh, growing up there and sense of place and things like that. Um, I did studies at Oklahoma State. Um, so we, I actually moved uh, during high school up to Kansas. It was 90 miles north, but you asked us at the time, it would have been like we moved to Mars, right? We, <laughs> we, it was that big of a deal to us. And, you know, among Okies, North Central people don't think they really have an accent, but I got to Kansas and they acted like I was Foghorn Leghorn or something. <laughs> and uh, so, you know kind of going um, away, even though it wasn't very far, um, solidified that idea of being from Oklahoma, and we would drive uh, 50 miles south so we could pick up the radio broadcasts from Oklahoma State. Um, and so I did. I went to Oklahoma State because it was like, you know, I wanted to go back to Oklahoma. My, uh, my, my parents started college and didn't finish, but my granddad went to there when it was Oklahoma A&M. He was an agronomist. He, he was a wheat inspector. We actually... We called him Hoppy because the day I was born, there was a grasshopper infestation that he was uh, investigating. And so they were like, you're a grand Hoppy. And then it stuck. Like in Oklahoma, every, a lot of people have names like this. Um, so we went back to Oklahoma State. And uh, my first foray into showing you that uh, wisdom sometimes looks a lot like folly is I did a philosophy degree at an ag school. And if I would have been thinking... <laughs> I would have got on that Wendell Berry train, right? I <laughs> right, should have right. double majored. My granddad was trying to make me double major. He's like, do your philosophy weirdness, but do a agriculture too. And I was like, no one's going to do that, granddad. And I could have been raking in the, the Wendell Berry dough if I would have been thinking. But um, So I went and did philosophy. You wouldn't be there. able to own a computer, though. So That's right. I mean, <laughs> I, my, my wife could have had the computer, right? That's, <laughs> That's right. Um, but... Uh, 
So I went and did that uh, because, you know, in high school, started to being the the weird kid that read, uh, you know, Kierkegaard and um, started uh, ordering um, books that we thought would uh, make the, the poor Mennonite librarian up there in Kansas um, scandalize. So I was like, I got in mind to, to be a philosophy major. And uh, there I, I met the the campus minister there was a student of Stanley Hauerwas, um, who, of course, was taught here at Notre Dame for a long time, was at Duke, you know, at Duke at that point, um, and uh, so I had gone away. From, I grew up Southern Baptist, um, not really fundamentalist or anything like that. Sort of a down homey, old style singing hymns Baptist, and you know, I it was the '90s. Seinfeld was uh, in the water. Uh, you you kind of think you can have your personal relationship with Jesus. So when we moved up to Kansas. Uh, we, we went for a little bit, but the church that we were going to uh, split, and so then I was kind of just doing my own thing and running around, coming up with weird theories about uh, Jesus and the church and whatnot. But so then I met this uh, this minister, and uh, he he had me start reading Stanley Hauerwas, and by that time I became president of the philosophy club, did that, you know, two years, because... I was, you know, really cool at the time. Uh, and so we, we got to have uh, Dr. Howross come and uh, talk that last year, my senior year. And so started getting back into the idea of doing things in the church, like philosophy for the church. Started going back to church, you know, it was Methodist church at that point. So, uh, yeah, I, I decided to do Protestant seminary out at Duke and uh, was a Stanley Howarwas student and uh, went off to Duke Divinity. And, and once you do that, you, you, you have several options before you if you're a Stanley Hauerwas student. You can either go uh, the Karl Barth route, and uh, I read Barth for the first time, and uh, very fundamental to where I ended up. I did not like him at all, uh, but then I took all the Aristotle and Aquinas classes, and I became uh, you know, partly doomed from that day on <laughs> uh, to follow the, the Hauerwas converts uh, that... that, that to go to the uh, the Catholic way, and of course uh, uh, make the connection here, you know, up here on the fourth floor. Um, had me start reading Alistair McIntyre and uh, the sort of people associated in, in that sort of um, world, and then it was, you know, it was all she wrote. Yeah, um, converted um, year three. I always joke around that I, as an Oklahoman, I knew I was going to make too much money as a Methodist minister, so I converted uh, because the wages of sin are death, and right above that's Catholic wages, and uh, I, I knew I knew how to deal with that, right? Uh, no, but um, it, you know, I, intellectually, I'd have to say at Duke, half a semester in, I was like. You know, I have to be Catholic some way because we, we were reading the Church Fathers, um, like I said, like the sort of ethical theories that w- once you decide you're an Aristotelian and that you you love uh, Aquinas, you know, it's all it's all uh, everybody could have like sort of drew my path at that point, I suppose. But you know, intellectually, I was trying to to deal with that. So I'm going to be Catholic, but how do you do that? Um, Catholic-esque, as it were, um, while you're remaining Protestant. And it it took spiritual conversion. Uh, You know, God had to choke me out as a a, a bullheaded Okie to finally get me to go, no, you're going to submit to the church and you're convert. And so I did and kind of threw away uh, the path I thought I was going to go. I thought I was going to do sort of campus ministry and teaching. um, But I, I luckily called back Oklahoma State and they needed an adjunct. And that's what set me down the path of teaching philosophy. Wow. <laughs> you you went to be a minister and you came back to teach in a secular school. 
Well, I mean, you know, even secular schools in Oklahoma are uh, a, a bit less secular than maybe some other places. But certainly, yes, uh, I suppose that philosophy departments uh, at Oklahoma State even um, are, you know, uh, secular-esque. But uh, I think at the time they go like, yeah, the only people who come back and adjunct at the philosophy department are either religious weirdos or Marxist weirdos. And I was friends with all of them. So it was, uh, it, was it was a great time to uh, cut your teeth I mean, they. It, it was it was a heady time. Uh, they, I think, I was getting paid like twenty thousand dollars or something, and it was you know it's me and my wife, and we were expecting our first kid. But rent, you could you could pull that off back then. You know, this is all before two thousand eight and the market crash, and you could do crazy stuff like teach five to seven intro classes to philosophy. And uh, I think about those poor kids that were my education, right? Like getting to go teach and loving philosophy and you know they they at least got their money they paid for that they got to see someone love philosophy and try to share it with them like that i can attest to um but i learned so much teaching and inevitably teaching poorly i'm sure um but i owe those students some that i like still had a chance to like check up on every so often still i owe those students so much they they were such an important part um, of me learning not only how to teach but philosophy itself. So I was educated at Oklahoma State and, and Duke, uh, but I had a, another education opportunity just to hit the road teaching, um, just to get to like gnaw on those texts together uh, with a bunch of kids that I learned to love the fact none of them wanted to be in philosophy classes. Like that was like the, the enjoyable part is you got to stand up there and after you love something enough, um, you can either be mad that people don't love it as much as you, or you can think of it as this wonderful opportunity to get to convince them why it's lovable. And I guess I'm just enough of a turd that like that was one of my favorite parts. Like when people ask, like, who do you want to teach? I mean, it's great to have really smart students. Like it would be silly to not act like that's the case. Um, but there's a there is just such a joyful uh, challenge to get to teach freshmen who are like, why am I in a philosophy class? And so then you get to go stuff like, ha-ha, that's already a philosophical question. I'm already winning. And you didn't even know. So it's wonderful. I loved that. It was, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm glad tacos were cheap back then because we could hardly afford any food. Um, but I would never trade those days. That's the sort of education of getting to just hit the ground running, teaching intro philosophy uh, when you're just some dumb 20-something grad student. Uh, it, it's it's unrepeatable, the sort of education that was for me. Well, now you're at Mercy College of Health Sciences in Des Moines, where you serve as the Senior Advisor of Mission Initiatives and the Director of the Center for Human Flourishing. So first off, tell us a little bit about Mercy College. W what's its mission? Uh, who are the students and, and why are they there? Yeah, so the mission of Mercy College, I mean, I, I won't give you the canned answer. The easiest way to put this right is like if you go read it, you know, we, we display our, our mission out there for everybody to read. But the heart of the mission, if I can put it this better way, is to live Catherine McCauley's life today. So Venerable Catherine McCauley is the founder of the Sisters of Mercy. So this is in the um, mid-1800s. And Dublin, Ireland, of course, uh, at that time is a sort of post-industrial revolutionary mess. You have the Ireland where, uh, because of industrialization and colonization, you have 
people who were, were peasants mere years ago all being shoved into the industrial centers of Ireland. And uh, Dublin is just, it's dirty. It's, it has all of these issues with poverty, and it is especially brutal um, to young mothers, and especially single mothers, like for the various reasons they become single. But a lot of it is that um, the young men are dying in factories. Just a devastation of a sort of way of life. Um, you know, this like after some of the, like, uh, the initial famines, and so you have all of these people coming into uh, the middle of Dublin. Catherine herself is is the child of what would be, I guess, the middle class. There is a very small middle class, especially for Irish people. Um, but her dad made a, a decent enough living, and he dies relatively early in her life. Quickly, she goes and works uh, for the Callahans as sort of a maidservant to, to uh, help her sisters. And uh, the Callahans are um, Anglo-Irish, so they're not uh, Catholic, um, and they're a sort of landed family. But out of the sort of love and devotion um, that Catherine just shows... Uh, not only in service to them, but really becoming a part of the family, they eventually convert at the very end of their lives. And to the surprise of everyone, including the Callahan's children, they leave all of their wealth to Catherine. And uh, as my good friend Bud Mara is always prone to say when he's like teaching this point, you know, she, by all rights, Catherine McCauley could have said, you know, I had a tough life and there, no one would have abated an eye if she would have taken that money and not like, you know, lived it up, but just lived a decent life, right? She had already struggled more than most of us had. And instead, she takes that money and she founds the House of Mercy. She gets together with some of her friends to do something about the Dublin poor that are, uh, you know, in the gutters, right? Um, and so she's going to try to help them health-wise, feed them, and also educate a lot of these young women who, like I said, end up in, in urban Dublin with not a lot of skills that fit the new urban realities, and so she starts doing this on her own. This sort of uh, flies in the face of uh, sort of like the, the social mores of, of the time. And there's people who they don't know what to kind of process like this young, unattached woman doing these sort of things. And so there starts to be this push like, shouldn't you just join a religious order or shouldn't you turn this house over to a religious order? And depending on who you talk to, there's sort of this all of a sudden Catherine's like, well, what if we found a religious order? And people interpret this all sorts of ways, but the sort of providential aspect is any misgivings she may have had, she goes off uh, to do, you know, like sort of novice training herself, her and like some of the first uh, sisters, and she soon discovers her love of the religious life and understands that like something that she never would have expected uh, is what God and his providence, and providence plays a huge role for Catherine Macaulay. Providence has brought her to this point, to this love of making sisters that, through their devotion uh, to the Dublin poor, can truly uh, show God's mercy. So the, the corporal works and the spiritual works of mercy become their thing. And so they're instituted um, as a, a, a religious order, and they become known as the walking nuns because unlike most of the nuns of that time, which are cloistered, they truly are out in the streets every night going and finding people um, who have these issues, who are poor, who need educated, etc. And so why this, to me, and this is why I go on this long rampage of a history, to describe what we're up to is everywhere the sisters go, and by the time they're hitting America, they're doing two things. They found hospitals or, or houses of mercy. So like in Des Moines, we have the hospital, Mercy One. We have the House of Mercy, which is for uh, addiction recovery. And then they found schools. And the schools, there's all sorts of them, and especially uh, in the east uh, of America. They're four-year schools, liberal arts schools like you would
would think. But they also have nursing schools that sort of come out of uh, the, the rib of, of different hospitals, as it were. And so Des Moines uh, founds this hospital, and by 1899, it's 1898 or 1899, they, have, they start their first class uh, as a nursing school attached to the hospital. So Mercy, as educating nurses has existed over 100 years. We become a college um, in the 90s. Uh, like That's when the sort of uh, preliminary stuff starts. Uh, by the 2000s, we're uh, a college that mostly does associates of nursing. And when we start doing things like um, uh, allied health, and then uh, we the bachelor program, and now we're even starting to do uh, masters uh, in, in, in nursing, allied health programs, certificate programs. So we are a professional school um, that, is deeply rooted in precisely this idea of part of the mission of mercy is, of course, healing, right? So we're making people who are going to go into the medical fields. But education itself, of course, is a sort of mercy and healing, right? Mm -hmm. um, so the, the sort of two arms of the Sisters of Mercy, uh, I always like to point out, um, mimic what um, Thomas Aquinas actually talking about what the teacher is. What's his first metaphor when he says what a teacher is? And it's, it's a doctor or a healer. And he says, just like um, a doctor doesn't put health into the soul of someone, neither uh, does the teacher put knowledge in someone's head. So what does a doctor do? Well, they remove things that, that are disastrous to someone's health, you know, cancer, disease, whatever it is. And so the teacher removes error. But in the other aspect, right, when a, when a healer puts medicine or cures, the idea is to aid the body what it does naturally, not replace it. And in the same way, right, a teacher demonstrates the process of discovery, which is what we want students to do. We're not downloading information to their heads, just like you're not putting health in a, in a human mind. You're removing what blocks what people do by nature, either bodily or spiritually, intellectually. And so it makes sense to me that at the deepest level, all of the children of Catherine Macaulay are usually doing one of these two things, and they're usually um, either close to each other or mixed, right? So, like, we are teaching students to go then serve in the profession of uh, nursing and allied health and certificate programs, which is about the wonderful phrase in our mission, the healing ministry of Jesus Christ. And my point is teaching is a part of that healing ministry as well. Yeah. Wow. So everything you just said flows out of, obviously, your your position as senior advisor of mission initiative. And I forget, right? Like, you were asking right. me what I did. Well, so I guess yeah. I showed you, right? Like, right. I go around telling versions of that story, and I try to tell people how their jobs uh, relate to that. It's not just, you know, my job to go around and talk about Catherine McCauley. It really is the case that... When we try to retain students, that's mission, right? We're trying to keep them uh, there. When, when we clean the building and make it a hospitable place, that's, that is a corporal work of mercy. Um, that's what's so wonderful about us being a mercy institute is a lot of people try to show how mission is intertwined in everything in, in their position. My job's easy because all things we do either relate to the spiritual works of mercy or the corporal works. And so that's my job is um, I, when we were sort of fashioning the position, I didn't start out there with this position. I wanted to make sure that we didn't set it up where mission seemed like one more slice of the pie or that it's something Bo did. I wanted to advise everyone about how what they're already doing relates to our mission. It's a matter of being focused on that, bringing that out and deeply threading it. And so that 
that's my job is to advise but to to that that initiative part i think is really important is it's already there in seed form how do we draw it out of what everything we do yeah here in the building we're in get us hall it's our lady of mercy chapel is right in the door. You walk in, and, and I mean, the windows depict, of course, the, the corporal works of mercy, and, and they are familiar images. Like, we see Brother Andre. We see we see Mother Teresa. We're reminded of these as we walk into our building, uh, and we pray with our students. Well, that's we why I'm friends with so many of you guys here, right? It's, <laughs> right. Uh, mercy itself uh, is... Um, I'm going to start quoting Shakespeare on accident, so if I'm plagiarizing Billy Shakes, forgive me. But uh, it's a quality, right, that uh, you know even kings themselves should should demonstrate and show. Uh, and it it really is effusive. It uh, it is something that if we start being merciful, you'll be surprised about all the ways mercy shows up all over the place. Yeah. So tell me about your work at the Center for Human Flourishing. What's what's your mission there uh, within the college, and and then what do you do to accomplish that mission? Absolutely. So the center's brand new. We've had it for a year, and that was at the same time that we developed the position of senior advisor for mission initiatives. And in some way, that's about the internal um, way in which we thread mission. We wanted to make sure there was an external way that the mission of uh, of, of the college was shared. And so did the dorky philosophical move and said, what are the two things, at least, all, like there's all sorts of things colleges do, but specific difference-wise, what are two things colleges and universities do? And one, of course, is instruct and teach, um, but the other is to produce knowledge. But they should produce knowledge that's consummate to the character of who they are and the heritage and identity of who they are. Not everywhere needs to be Notre Dame, right? Notre Dame, uh, the sort of uh, ivory tower in the best sense, right, of where you get scholars to come and, th- and think speculatively and theoretically. All of those, uh, you know, now and episteme and all these words that I'm butchering that people at Notre Dame will know I can't speak Greek. Um, but these ideas, right, of, of, of the high and speculative you know, four-year residential schools with large grad departments and PhD students should be about that work. That's what they should do. But on the other hand, you know, just because we're a, a, a practical school, as it were, right, a professional school, doesn't mean that we only instruct about technique. So there's this fifth way, right, phronesis, uh, practical wisdom. And again, my summation was that everything the sisters did was about being practically wise. It was not just like, of course, like do the corporal and spiritual works of mercy, uh, but also teach people, right, how to be wise in these situations. That a lot of the sort of um, schools that the sisters started to make was about these professional training, but how to do it with a mercy difference. There's an entire theory of nursing called careful nursing, for instance, that comes from the Sisters of Mercy. It's a whole other thing. I, I'll have to tip my hat. Uh, people should go read uh, Charlie Camosi's book, Bioethics for Nurses. Um, he thanks Mercy College and myself in the intro. It's, uh, uh, it's very nice to preface, I should say. Um, but that first uh, chapter is the history of how nursing emerges um, from the, the orders and like not taking any glow off of uh, Florence Nightingale, but uh, if she's the mother of modern nursing, the grandmothers are the sisters who she was friends with. And I think that's like not spoken about enough. So consummate with this grand story of the sisters is this practical wisdom. Like how do we take not um, a theoretical step in the clouds, the million foot view, but how do we take one step back and think about how the technical and practical things can be better 
pointed to, better connected to, better directed towards ends and goals of what we're after. And so the Center for Human Flourishing, we wanted to produce knowledge that was in character with who we are. So the focus is on practical wisdom, but the focus is also on flourishing. So human flourishing um, is a concept that... uh, it's not original to me or by any means, right? There's plenty of people and plenty of um, other organizations that have started to talk about this. But human flourishing, I think, encapsulates something that we're starting to see a lot more. Well, people will talk about whole health, integrated health, or whole knowledge, right? This idea of we're more than just mere biology when we're trying to be healthy. There's the body, there's the mind, there's the soul, community, all of these things like this. And so the National League uh, for Nursing, I think it's what it's called, um, an international body that made human flourishing one of the things that uh, is, is an outcome that needs to be measured. It starts to, to, to deeply filter into these sort of ideas. And that careful nursing theory that I talked about has this large understanding that whatever we're doing when we're trying to help people, it's to human flourishing in its sort of largest sense. So human flourishing is a sort of understanding or a concept that obviously is deeply tied um, to the Catholic understanding of the human person, the healing ministry of Christ. But it's also a concept that I would say people who are not part of the church are able to approach what we do, and we have a sort of common understanding. People want to flourish, right? And they they understand that it can't be a fragmentary or sort of shallow understanding. And so by talking about human flourishing, we're hoping to produce the sort of practically wise knowledge that all sorts of communities can, so to speak, come to the table with us, a Catholic institution, trying to think through what are ways that we can help humans flourish better. Now, of course, medicine and biomedical ethics and, and medical practice are going to be, so to speak, our, our bread and butter in this consideration. So our first research fellow was Charles Camosi, who uh, runs around uh, doing Notre Dame-esque type stuff. I, I think people will know who I'm talking about. Um, and so he came, for instance, and he did a talk on deficiencies in elder care that popped up or were exposed during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And what are we as a church going to do to help not only the elderly flourish, but communities flourish in such a way that these problems um, start to be attended to. And it was wonderful, and we've already had people at Des Moines, uh, in Des Moines, excuse me, start to really grapple with what are ways that the church can prepare people better for the upcoming sort of crisis in elder care that's only expanding. Our first honorary fellow, so this is like our first program, is is we have fellows in to, to, to think about this sort of phronetic production of knowledge. Um, So practical wisdom. Mm -hmm. Um, So Dr. Russell Hittinger, uh, a very important person in my life. I brought up, you know, Stanley Hauerwas earlier, um, my sort of unofficial PhD, not only in just intellectual life, but life in general was from uh, the the charity of Dr. Hittinger uh, to befriend me. And so uh, I finally got to showcase him, um, you know, in, in what I did. And so he was the first honorary fellow and talked about intermediary societies. And that's the sort of blue blueprint and spirit of what we're talking about. Most information in Catholic world um, is either 
speculative and big and, and theoretical, and we need that, but it's often hard for people to grasp onto. Um, a lot of the rest of it is like catechetical and introductory, and again, good stuff, but what happens when you get past that, but you're not ready for uh, the mountaintop, as it were? And there's all this middle voice. That's always been a concern of mine, the middle voice. Um, our radio show that we do, uh, the Center for Human Flourishing, a lot of my concerns is about this middle voice. How do we help people who are ready to take that big step, where I think a lot of people intellectually need to land. And so intermediary societies, right, the things between the mere individual and the state as a whole, part of human flourishing is to have flourishing intermediary societies. So to have Dr. Hittinger be our inaugural honorary fellow and talk about that not only was important to me and such a wonderful blessing in my life, but I think it was a blessing for our center. Uh, both of them, right, as inaugural honorary fellows and research fellows, really that's the sort of blueprint for everything we hope, you know, to continue to do. And I'm in the process now of trying to get next year's honorary fellow and research fellow and continuing that sort of work. But we also produce multimedia where we're hoping to talk with folks uh, um, and, and think of new and inventive ways to get these ideas in front of people. Uh, but also trying to work with partners, uh, and uh, I think there's uh, interesting things on the horizon that uh, hopefully will come to fruition soon and we can talk about. But um, that, that idea of that even we as a center try to be, you know, so for Anise, it's practically wise. How do we help people with not just the sort of technique of what they're doing, but take that one step back, and how do we align what we're doing better with the end or goal that we have? And a number of your resources are available on your website, which, of course, we'll link to in the show notes. I noticed you had, like, little clips as well as links to the full talk. Absolutely. You're, you're, you know, you need, to, you need to call me, like, every week, kind of remind me to, to do a better job of advertising these things. <laughs> yeah, mchs.edu slash flourish. Well, now, uh, you've spoken at our fall conference. As a matter of fact, you joined us here in, in uh, uh, fall of 21 uh, to speak on a panel with Kristen Collier and Brett Robinson in which you guys discussed COVID, St. John Henry Newman, and teaching dignity in medical education, medical formation. Now, Dr. Collier, who, of course, was a friend of the podcast, mm -hmm. uh, previously said here that she knew nothing about Newman prior to your suggesting the idea. So now I actually get to ask you, ah. where does your interest in Cardinal Newman come from, and how has he... Uh, I assume he has. How has he influenced your own intellectual work and spiritual Yeah, Chris journey? was lying. No, I'm kidding. Of course <laughs> not. Well, just real quick, I know you covered it there, but one more hat tip that, like, the first time I got to speak at the fall conference was 2019, and so that was on friendship. Right. So I had this whole talk about um, how we should read books like they're our friends. Uh, I went back and listened to it. I thought it was a good one. People should go back and listen to it. But, yeah, that's... I'll link to it in there the show you, notes. You should. I, you I, I'm really... Uh, if I can find it. My haircut is terrible, though. Oh, good. Yes, good. just so, you know... No, it wasn't all perfect. I looked terrible. <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, so I cannot... I, I just... The value of the friends I made, it was sort of like uh, the conference was a self-fulfilling prophecy. To make those friends before COVID then occurred, Yeah. Um, I, I just, I owe you guys up here on the fourth floor so much uh, because that happened and the friendships I made. So I, I on air want to say thank you very much. It was meant so much to me. And you're right. So... I started talking to Kristen afterwards, uh, after this talk. And then, uh, you know, again, like a sort of preview, uh, 
every you know people will dog uh, social media, but uh, if you use it wrong, which means that's the right way to use it, um, you befriend people, and so we got to be friends on Twitter, and you know liked each other's uh, stuff because I think uh, we we both uh, are, are prone to throwing up things we think people should read. Conversated a back and forth a bit. But Newman, for me, let me point out, like, with Kristen, and then I'll go back a little further. In his idea of a university, in the second part, the final lecture he gives, which I don't think people really notice this, uh, he gives to the medical school at the Irish University. And he gives it to doctors. And he really focuses on the power of medicine and how it's the power of medicine, it's power for good, that can make it an ill fit uh, for the circle of knowledge. Uh, and like I said, like, I don't want to, you know, just re- redo um, the talk we gave. Uh, also on Church Life Journal, of course, uh, Kristen and I wrote um, an article that kind of gets to this as well. But to, to get to the, where this was working is, I gave a talk in New Orleans uh, with uh, uh, the, the Newman Association Conference, and I gave it on that last essay but it was more, uh, it was that, and then I, I was trying to combine it with this other part of uh, the idea of, the, of a university. And, you know, you, you, you get trained in academia to, like, you need to write papers and you need to make these arguments. And I was just getting stuck because, to me, it seemed like I was navel-gazing on this particular point. And I go, I should talk to a doctor about this. You know, like, why, why should I try to, like, you know, fight my way through... Uh, what what would a doctor think about what Newman's saying? Like, because I thought it was extremely prescient, but yeah, like so. Then I was like, well, I should talk to Kristen, right? Like, she's a doctor; she's interested in this stuff. And so it was just wonderful to get to read with someone coming from a very different approach. And I, that's what I hope to do. I, I love team writing with people precisely because you, you get to have this sort of mutual discovery about these things. I, I, I love that sort of approach. And that's really sort of how Newman um, has worked in my life the entire time. I'm not a Newman scholar. Uh, there's multiple people that include me with Newman stuff. The real Newman scholar is, of course, my best friend, Bud Marr, who uh, is with us at Mercy College now. But he, for a while, was uh, the director of the National Institute of Newman Studies in Pittsburgh and uh, did his dissertation on Newman and everything like this. But it's one of those deals where Newman, as a saint, decides he's going to captivate your life. So I'll tell you how that works out is... So I, you know, I was telling you, I was teaching at Oklahoma State, sort of super adjuncting. And then I had this wonderful opportunity, Dr. Russell Hittinger, who Stanley Hauerwas had sort of passed uh, the bow torch off to him, went on sabbatical and said, you should come over to the University of Tulsa and teach my classes while I'm gone. Generous thing to do. Um, I, I had a, a new boss, Dr. Uh, Jacob Howland, who uh, I learned so much about philosophy and the sort of being in academia, you know, just blessing after blessing and you know that's precisely when all these blessings are happening that you should know uh, that god also probably has a blessing of challenges in mind so 2008 happens and you know russ comes back i try a few things gonna try to see some of, of stuff works out thinking maybe grad school who knows uh and then the economy crashes and then they don't need adjuncts now funny enough eventually they would because a lot of kids have came back to school but initially Everyone was worried, so they kind of let adjuncts go. So I was out of a working job. I did, like, temp work. I was bad at all of it. Um, If you're out there and you think, I wonder if Bo wants to pack boxes and label them. No, I was bad at that job. Uh, 
so I'm it's it's a it's a pretty I don't know what I'm gonna do right I'm at some point thinking maybe maybe I don't do academia anymore because I just didn't see a path forward and out of the blue what happens is a Newman Center at Wichita State um, through these just bizarre ways like uh, I was driving back and forth three hours to this temp job and in the middle of nowhere Kansas uh, there was this graveyard so I would go stop because it's the halfway point anyway and I would pray there and I said if any of the dead here uh, so I'm a new convert at this point relatively to like maybe three years or something if any of the, the you know the dead here uh, get out of purgatory because my prayers uh, can you help me get a job and so I do that for like six months or a year and then very randomly at a John Senior conference down at Clear Creek Abbey, someone's like, you need to go talk to the priest of the Newman Center at Wichita State. And they hired me as a director of faith formation, a job they sort of created where I would do faith formation stuff and then teach great books program there. And after that didn't work out for various reasons, uh, Newman University in Wichita hired me. And then, you know, I, I various reasons, I, I end up in um, Iowa. Uh, that's, you know, Bud Marr was up there and I, I went and got the gang back together. And then all of a sudden I talked with this friend of mine, Dave Delio, who runs the Newman Idea down in uh, New Orleans. And his general idea, and he's still up to it, is uh, you you teach the great book-esque type curriculum at state schools uh, for students who who need Catholic uh, humanities intellectual formation, but don't don't get the opportunity by going to a Catholic school. So go to the state schools and do this, and or not even state schools, stu- schools that aren't Catholic. So he's doing this at Tulane, and uh, so we get in cahoots over that. So I'm, I'm, I, I join up with him uh, with his nonprofit, The Newman Idea, and so I'm going to teach these classes. And so I dive really deep into Newman because, you know, I, his educational theory, I should really say, which is what I know. And so I'm doing this because, like, we're going to teach great books programs uh, in the spirit of John Henry Newman. And, and so that's where I got deep into Newman because I worked for this nonprofit and we were going to storm the world, and it was going to be great. And then COVID happened. And uh, there was another thing where uh, what was going good, all these blessings, right? Uh, God decided it was time for another test. Um, and, you know, it was just too hard to have multiple people on at a, a nonprofit with uh, the sort of drying up of funds. So that's when I went full-time again. I was half-time doing stuff at Mercy at the same time. But I went full-time back at uh, Mercy, and that's when we developed the senior advisor role and the Center for Human Flourishing. So Newman has been background haunting me (laughs) at least since 2010, and it's funny how he keeps dropping lines and hints about his importance in my life uh, to where now people call me up and go, what do you think about Blank with Newman? And I, what I always tell people, and this is another homage to Stanley Hauerwas, he has a book called Resident Aliens that's about um, you know, Christian life uh, in this world. Um, I feel like a resident alien in Newman scholarship because I am not a Newman scholar. Um, I'm a, 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 when I, there I say I'm a dirty philosopher who's just fascinated by his educational theories. And they've been so kind to even let me sort of run around in their circles at all because I don't truly belong. But I felt so much love from people that in the, the Newman studies proper that, yeah, and he evidently has plans for my life that I can't explain. He's the hound of heaven. At least for me, and I mean, it's very nice of a of a British guy doing that, you know. 
Well, now you're here at Notre Dame this week because you're presenting a capstone project to wrap up your work in the Church Communications Ecology Program from our partners at the McGrath Institute for Church Life. You've hinted that some exciting stuff is coming out of this. So I'll just ask, what have you learned in the program and what was your capstone about? Oh, man. Um, the ecology, the, the the church ecology program has been life-changing. Um, I, it, I know it seems like I'm gushing, but I love these people to death. And I've only known them since January. It, it's just gathered such a wonderful group of people uh, to both think through really hard questions, but immediately try to see the purchase they have um, on the ground. Because these people do everything from like my group, myself, Bud, Matt Romke, uh, from Mercy College, where we're trying to uh, use uh, what we've learned at CCEP to make Mercy a better place, the sort of ecological perspective, you know, figure ground, how do we use communi- uh, communication, the media, and all these things like this to, to make sense of the decisions we have to make as an organization. Uh, there's high schools, there's churches, there's, uh, you know, we have two transitional deacons, a whole array of people that have been truly converted and transformed in the way that we approach the most pressing question that everybody in the Catholic Church seems to be asking about how will we be the church in the digital world? And, you know, to me, the most fundamental thing, because again, there's too much to explain, is that a thing that has to change for all of us is we must stop thinking of media as just a tool external to us. So McLuhan's big argument here is that media is an extension of who we are. And so I just want to start there, that if we have a problem with media, we actually have a problem with ourselves, And so there's no magic, pure land to run away from media and not be tempted by it. Because everything that the digital world can make us go astray, books can make us go astray in a similar way. I mean, I love great books, but of course, the book caused everything from like the nation state to the Reformation. Speech, which is a medium, right? In the Bible, what's the one medium uh, that we get warned about the most? In its speech, And even silence, the primordial medium, can lead us astray as well. All of these things must be purified by the media, the 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 one, you know, reality which where the medium and the message are truly one, and that's Jesus Christ, who is both medium and message all in one. And so we're under the protection, of course, also uh, Mary, the mediatrix of all graces. We are a culture of being mediated, of uh, 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 the, the church. We, we offer ourselves on uh, our wills on the altar of, of, of obedience even, not for the sake of just learning to fall in line, but because we know deep down our grace is mediated to us in the person of Jesus Christ, in the saints, right? That Like Newman, who've, who's been the medium of me pursuing this intellectual life that I didn't set out to go do. I never thought I was going to go get published talking about John Henry Newman, but evidently he did. And so all of this, right, is, and I'm just touching on a few things that, that, that come to the reality in the fore when we're talking about um, the, the, the church communication ecology uh, program. And so, you know, our project really was about um, that, how that life is sort of lived out at, at an organizational level. How do we think about a college, not like a series of problems or information we have to decipher to make choices about. How do we understand the college as an ecology, right? Like, so what I was saying at the end, and this is wrapping up a lot of great work from, again, my colleagues, Matt Romke and Bud Marr, 
we need to stop asking what is a what is the problem and where is the problem where is the problem in the ecology of our college and what decisions will have ramifications so to speak downstream that we're not thinking about and uh you know we're hoping to publish um what we've talked about we're hoping to make uh get back uh, to des moines and uh boots on the ground, start seeing actual change in these things. So um, all of that coming from this wonderful program where we get the chance to read great readings, but to really be a, a community that, you know, we all already are talking about this. This is, so to speak, the capstone. This is where it ends. But we're going to refuse to let this community end because it's such a providential and grace-filled year that this has been. In some ways, the community that you formed is one of those same middle institutions uh, that Russell Hittinger is talking about. Absolutely. Um, I will tell Brett that essentially uh, that my center predicted his. <laughs> I'm going to go tell him that now. No, no, but you're absolutely right. This is exactly the sort of thing that whatever, you know, and again, we don't need to get into the big histronics of all this, but whatever the modern world is, it's a tendency to sort of make a vacuum in the middle Right, So we're, we all largely are prone to think of ourselves either as radically individual or sort of radically collective. But what makes life flourish, what makes it worth living and sort of able to be lived is the multitude of, uh, of, of, of middle institutions like, like the church, like marriage, but then also like civil societies, right? Uh, you know, the, from the bowling league to, uh, you know, the, the, to downtown civic associations, but certainly things like... Uh, the the church communication ecology program, which is this sort of middle voiced, middle institution that hopefully connects the right sort of people where we can share uh, these ideas and help each other on the various grounds that we find ourselves. Wonderful, wow. Well, Bob Bonner, this has been obviously this has been a wide ranging and delightful conversation <laughs> about all sorts of things but uh best of luck as you as you now seek to take that what you've kind of been talking about and as you say translated into boots on the ground experience well it's been like i said it's a blessing to be here at notre dame it's a blessing to be um a part of uh various things going on and uh, in this good old building and um, i'm even looking forward to already trying to make plans about what to write about um with the fall conference coming up um this won't be the last you see of me buddy uh, <laughs> uh we we have such great friends here and uh Thank you for letting me be on the show, but many blessings to all the stuff that you guys are doing. Um, inescapably important, and uh, just so glad that you guys are here uh, holding the fort down. Well, thank you so much. Thank you to Bo Bonner. In the show notes, you will find links to his presentations at our fall conference and to his work at the Center for Human Flourishing. Subscribe to Ethics and Culture Cast so that you can always get the latest episodes by visiting ethicscenter.nd.edu slash podcast. We would love your feedback. Please review the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and email your suggestions to cecpodcast at nd.edu. Our theme music is I Don't Know by Grapes licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution License. We'll see you next time on Ethics and Culture Cast. Until then, make good decisions. <laughs>